Could family genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas? To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonabello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now, you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Could family genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas? To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonobello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now, you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. All hit radio. Welcome to the X Zone. A place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality. Now, here's your host, Rob McConnell. I am here. I am your home. I've nurtured you. My mountains you hide And valleys below Black cold live with me I'm with you wherever you go My brother the sun Light your path each day And welcome back to the X-Zone everyone I am Rob McConnell And for the next four hours I'm your host and your guide As together we cross the time-space continuum To this place that I call the X-Zone it's a place where people dare to believe and dare to be heard. It's a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality. And the Exxon comes to you Monday through Friday from 10, a, uh, 10 p.m. Eastern until 2 a.m. Eastern right here on the Exxon Broadcast Network, Talkstar Radio Network, and Mutual Broadcast Network. If you'd like to send me an email, exxon at com on all social media sites, Exxon Radio TV. And for the uh, broadcast schedule of the Exxon TV channel exclusive to Simul TV, visit www.simultv.com. 
Exonation. Nation, my guest this hour is Brooks Agnew, and Brooks grew up in Pasadena, California, hanging around JPL and Caltech. He entered the United States Air Force in 1973, where he graduated top in his class in electronics engineering. He received his Bachelor of Science with honors in chemistry from Tennessee Technological University. He is a certified quality engineer, a Six Sigma master, and a member of the Society of Automotive Engineering. He has worked for over 30 years consulting with the Fortune 100 companies to save or bring back America more than 10,000 highly productive jobs. After publishing more than 10,000 articles and technical documents, he authored seven Amazon best-selling books with 11 titles in print. He is one of the world's most recognized voices in the podcast world today after 17 years on the web. Brooks has been featured on dozens of TV and hundreds of radio programs as well as numerous scientific documentaries. He is a multi-patented engineer and currently the CEO of an electric truck manufacturer in North Carolina. For more information on our guest, after the show, visit www.brooksagnew.com. And Brooks, welcome back to the Exxon. Great having you with us. Oh, thank you so much, Rob. Good to be here. Oh, boy. This is a crazy world, Brooke. Uh, I'm just going to ask you a very simple question. Why do you think everything is going to hell in a handbasket? <laughs> <laughs> well, you usually does that because good men are doing nothing. Ah. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of cookies on the table. And as long as uh, we let them uh, feed off of us, right. uh, they will. And uh, that's where it's going. Now, uh, your latest book is entitled Asteroid Mining, the Future of Energy. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, uh, I became interested in this uh, when I was in the eighth grade, actually. I was uh, interviewed by a newspaper uh, when I was in the eighth grade. They asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I said, well, I think I want to be an asteroid miner. This is Mm -hmm. before we even went to the moon. So the interviewer didn't really know where to go with that. And I honestly don't remember what the rest of the answers were. (laughs) But I've been interested in the program my entire life. And uh, so that's why me and my friends, we we went and did co-ops at JPL. And my friends stayed there. And I went in the Air Force uh, to get the GI Bill and go on to college. And we stayed in touch over the years. So it's been an absolutely fascinating uh, growth not just in in going to the moon and the things that you see on the news that are popular with documentaries, but the actual prospect of uh, unbelievable wealth in space. And, you know, for a long, long time, it's just been governments involved in it. In the last, uh, oh, 10 years or so, private industry has been allowed to get involved. And during the Trump administration, uh, the the shackles were taken off. And so now it's become, you know, the gold rush of the 21st century. So I decided to write this book because there was so much wild speculation about what was going on in space, you know, secret space programs right. and anti-gravity drives and everything. And I thought, eh, maybe it's time that uh, someone put out a book about what asteroid mining really is, how long it'll take, what kind of equipment we built so far, and what's going to happen in the next 10 to 20 years. Do we have the technology presently, Brooke, to actually succeed in asteroid mining? Uh, The technology, yes, but we don't have the equipment in place. It's not as easy as just going out there and grabbing 
driving an asteroid or bringing it back to Earth and landing it in the desert somewhere. There's right. a lot of infrastructure that has to go into place. And that's what's happening as we speak. Why do you think uh, the, uh, why why do you think America is looking and going back to the moon? Well, that's interesting. There was a there was a a mission that took place called the L Cross mission, and it was actually a failed mission, but they turned it into a success. It was a rather large uh, spectrometer with a with a fuel system that was orbiting the moon, and it had a fuel leak, it ran out of fuel, it became defunct, and they said, what are we going to do with this? And they said, well, why don't we swing it around the south pole of the moon and separate the two halves. We'll drop the front half into this crater, and then we'll fly the spectrometer through the plume, grab the data, send it to Earth before the second half, which is the spectrometer, smashes into the moon, and that's what they did. Well, the discovery... Uh, was amazing. Not only did they find water yeah. in this uh, plume that they blew out into space, and we saw that from Earth with a spectrographic telescope, but we also found a huge reserve of an element we call helium-3. Now, it exists on the Earth, but only around volcanoes in very small amounts. Usually, we deal with helium-4, which is you know, it's inert, we fill party balloons with it, mm -hmm. lighter than aircraft, but helium-3 is a very special isotope in the sense that um, it contains uh, energetic uh, protons. And when you fuse helium-3 together or with uh, deuterium, uh, it spits off protons instead of neutrons, which means it's not radioactive. And it releases a tremendous amount of energy, which can be used to power uh, nuclear power plants and rocketry and all kinds of things. So we haven't achieved the activation energy for fusion energy yet, but we're working on it. And once we do, all of space exploration is going to change. Of course, that doesn't really excite people as much as the prospect that there's a 10,000-year fuel supply sitting in that crater for Earth. Wow. When do you think that the feasibility timeline to get this energy bring it back to Earth, will be? Well, that's a that's a very complex question. I mean, we could just run up there and start, you know, grabbing samples and bringing it back mm -hmm. to Earth. Not that we really know what to do with it yet, but the infrastructure to do that isn't in place. Now, on Earth, we utilize our low Earth orbit uh, to put satellites that help us navigate the Earth. We right. use it as GPS satellites and, uh, you know, positioning and scanning systems that mm -hmm. help us find oil and gas and all kinds of things on the earth but nothing like that that exists on the moon so we're developing what we call cis lunar space this is the space between earth and the moon and the lunar orbit with some infrastructure that will help us uh, be successful and take much lower risks at accessing this energy on the moon so that's going to mm -hmm. take about um uh, could be 10 to 15 years. And the reason is the technology does exist in the sense that we do make what are called CubeSats, which is yep. these little um, cooler-sized mm -hmm. satellites that contain a lot of um, uh, technology that allows us to do things like access satellite internet and to be able to navigate ourselves around our planet. 
we want to put those in orbit around the moon in a kind of grid and then drop some lunar um, systems on the surface to link that up. And then we can navigate around the moon. We can land on the moon much safer than we do now. About half the things that we launched to the moon just splat. Just ask the Indians with their, uh, their probe last year. Uh, but it will also allow us allow us to drive around on the moon and l locate things uh, precisely on the moon. There are not many landmarks up there. You can't just you know go down to the where the old Burger King used to be and turn left. None of that stuff exists on the moon. So we need precise navigation systems to make it safe. All right, Brooke, you and I have to take our first commercial break. Uh, so please stand by. Exonation. Brooke a Agnew is our special guest. And if you'd like to find out more about Brooke, if you'd like to get copies of his books, visit his website, brooksagnew.com. And I believe your books are also available on Amazon.com. Yes, they're on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and there are other booksellers uh, that also sell the books as well. Excellent. Once again, Exonation, this hour, Brooks Agnew, and his website is www.brooksagnew.com. Now, Brooks and I will be back on the other side of this commercial break that's coming up on... And uh, before we go, just like to remind everyone that if you would like to subscribe to the Exxon TV channel, it is exclusive to Simul TV. Visit their website at www.simultv.com. This is the Exxon. This is a place where people dare to believe and dare to be heard. It's a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality. And we're coming to you from our broadcast center and studios in Crystal Beach, Ontario, Canada. Don't go away. Genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas. To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonobello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now, you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. sonobello.com slash save. sonobello.com slash save. It sounds like disaster is your favorite. 
And welcome back. That was Michael Horn, who is uh, known throughout the the UFO community as the North American representative for the Billy Meyer uh, Society, I guess it's called now. And, uh, you know, great song, Michael. Really enjoy it. Brooks Agnew is my guest, www.brooksagnew.com. Brooks, why, do, why are they spending all this money on Mars missions? If the moon is closer and the moon can actually, you know, provide us with these minerals that will actually help this planet here as well as the people on the planet. Well, it's it's an ongoing project. You know, we have cis lunar space and once we get this space developed and there are lots of projects, there's a gateway project which is going to allow uh, humans to... Uh, work in space and work between the Earth and the Moon, and there's the Artemis mission. So a lot of this is being developed as a stepping stone to the Moon. Now, you hear politicians and you hear um, uh, billionaires say, oh, we're going to skip the Moon, we're we're going to go straight to Mars. Uh, Obviously, we need to get to Mars eventually. We need to establish a colony on Mars so that we can access the asteroid belt, which is more local local to Mars than it is Earth. That's very complex, and we honestly don't have the technology to do it with humans yet. Right. It's about um, a seven-month trip from here to Mars, and that's when Mars is at its closest. It does that about every two years. And, of course, the issue is we don't have any supplies on Mars right now. We have to send... We'd have to send habitats, tools, food, medicine, a hospital, all these things to Mars before we send humans. And, you know, we think about launching millions, tens of millions of pounds of technology from Earth to Mars. It's extremely expensive. In fact, it's cost prohibitive. But if we develop the moon and we develop develop the ability to refuel in space, it reduces the cost per kilogram to get to Mars significantly. Plus, if we can master fusion rocketry or get a little better at what we call ion drives, we can reduce the time to get to Mars from seven months to about 70 days. And that is getting in the more feasible range. So it's it's all one big project uh, to develop the space between Earth and Mars. But uh, there are a couple stepping stones. One is to develop the moon, of course, and the Mm -hmm. other is to develop refueling stations. And there are some absolutely science fiction, fantastic ideas at putting that together, including moving rather large asteroids into what we call gravity wells. These are points of equidistance between uh, Earth and the moon, but along Earth's orbit, There are two gravity wells we call L4 and L5, which are the same distance from the Earth, but they're also the same distance from the moon. So it's kind of like an isosceles triangle. And if we can drop asteroids into those wells that have things like iron and titanium and nickel and water on them, we could turn those asteroids into space stations and then, you know, deep space exploration and observation becomes much more feasible. 
the timeline for that is about 20 to 30 years. It's not that far in the distance. No, but uh, to get to Mars, we're probably looking at 50 years. And to put a colony on Mars, mm -hmm. we're probably looking at 75 to 100 years. With the privatization uh, of space uh, in, in uh, space research coming in, uh, does this bring the cost factor down? Well, it does because of the return on investment. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what it's all about. Heretofore, we've just gone to space for exploration to answer scientific questions. And it's wonderful for, you know, PhD candidates, but the rest of the world isn't too excited about it. Uh, we, we get kind of bored with it. But once you uh, put a 10,000-year fuel supply two days away and it becomes feasible for private industry to develop that, now you have something that's, well, it's it, you can't even put a price on it. Uh, energy would be so cheap for Earth and so clean, you could you could literally give it away to to societies and and uh, take us to the next level of of growth. I mean, it would mm -hmm. change the socio political balance of our planet significantly. But do you think there are those in high places who would actually allow that to happen? Well, there are high places, and then there are high places. Right. There's competition now because, as I said, the gold rush mm -hmm. is on. So there, and this is the reason why the Space Force was developed. I have three chapters in the book on the Space Force, but uh, it creates uh, vulnerabilities that humans have historically capitalized on for one reason or another. And there have even been some really uh, telling um, movie productions and TV productions like The Expanse, which is a, a tremendous uh, work. All of the science is almost doable. And what we see is that the political stress and competitions and, and imbalances we have here on Earth just expand into space. So it needed to have a, a military presence to ensure three things. One is that if a private a company does go to the moon and does develop this technology that some government doesn't go up there and just take it over. The second is all of this technology, especially the CubeSats, are built with basically open source firmware like Linux and things like that. And my last meeting with uh, generals and a, a, a colonel at Fort Bragg they were extremely concerned about cybersecurity. So that's another right. big responsibility of Space Force is to protect these satellites and these this cislunar equipment that we put up there, that it can be hacked very easily and turned into a weapon. You know, one of these CubeSats, if it just uncontrollably fired its retro rockets, its positioning rockets, it could turn itself into a missile, which would just ruin a low Earth orbit. And it chaos and the war would be would be terrible and the third is to provide protection against uh, you know piracy mm -hmm. and to provide some economic scale because one asteroid one asteroid we've located is almost solid platinum it would bring so much wealth to whoever found it and developed it it would be worth quadrillions of dollars. It would it would totally inflate our economic system. So a system has to be put in place to deal with that kind of commerce, that level of commerce. This planet has always been historically plagued with scarcity of one kind 
or another, water, coal, uh, iron, uh, uranium, all, and even gold. You know, all these things are the, the scarcity that, that has been the basis of human society since the Earth cooled. All that goes away once we start tapping into the resources of the solar system. Do you think our society and our, our, our growth as a civilized planet is actually ready for this kind of wealth, this kind of deep space mining? Well, that's a great question. Uh, I would ask the question 10 years ago, do you think the world is ready for a, uh, a smartphone where people can access all the information mm -hmm. in the world in the palm of their hands? I would say, no, society wasn't ready for that. But that's we right. grew into it. Now, for you and me, it's an upgrade. Yeah. But for the next generation, they're hardwired to it and they're going to be able to do things with it that we never dreamed of what makes mars so important well of course mars is a good base to operate from industrially for accessing the asteroid belt there is uh, more wealth than earth could ever handle in the asteroid belt but it also opens the possibility of in some form or another, terraforming Mars. I mean, you, people don't realize how much a mountain the size of Everest of solid water, frozen water in space, is worth. You have oxygen, you have water, and you have fuel that you can make from water. So you don't have to come all the way back to Earth to get these resources. You can just step out to the asteroid belt, grab what you need, take it down to Mars, and process it. So it's a completely different paradigm, and that's why Mars is so important. Plus, it's gra gravitationally much larger than the moon. Um, I will say this because the, it's so far away, and it's really impossible to uh, originate all life on Mars from Earth. All right. Eventually, mm -hmm. life's going to have to be born on Mars, so you're going to have... Martians that will never be able to come back to Earth. Stand by, Brooks. You and I have to take our news break at the bottom of the hour. Exonation. Nation, Brooks Agnew is our special guest. www.brooksagnew.com This is the Exxon. Brooks and I return on the other side of this news break. Don't go away. Welcome back, everyone. Brooks Agnew is my very special guest this hour. His website is brooksagnew.com. Brooks, when we were talking in the last segment about mining the asteroid, bringing the material back to Mars for refinement, 
What would we do with that material once it's refined on the planet Mars? Well, of course, some of it could be transferred back to Earth. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that uh, technology that's made at low gravity with a little or no atmosphere is can be superior to what we can make here on the Earth. Uh, for instance, when I when I started college in Europe, they're building a system called ITER, I-T-E-R, and right. it is a multinational project to create a suspended plasma in which they can uh, conduct this helium-3 fusion. Now, they've been working on it for a long time, three decades, and my estimate is they've already gone over budget about three times uh, what they originally planned, and it's going to take another 30 years, maybe 35, to get that project done. The reason it's so big is the magnets that are required to suspend that plasma and compress this to create fusion are enormous. And the cavity that it takes to create this plasma and the shape and the, and the, and the compression is enormous. It means all that air has to be evacuated before the plasma can be formed. And overcoming those things has made ITER like a city. It's, it, they've spent billions and billions of dollars on it. In space, without air and with, with a low gravity, right. a plasma could much more easily be suspended. It can much more easily be compressed. And we might be able to do helium-3 fusion in something as small as a Winnebago, which would change everything. It would uh, open the stars to us. It would allow us to move about in space and push tremendous amount of weight in space, which we just can't do right now. So it makes sense to develop a Mars colony uh, from an industrial point of view. From an anthropological point of view, it's going to be challenging because, uh, you know, the gravity is about 68% less than it is here on Earth. Mm -hmm. And so... A child that grows up or born on Mars and grows up on Mars would never be able to sustain the gravitational uh, power of Earth. You, you, you know, I weigh about 0.1 metric tons myself on this planet. But if I was born on Mars and I came back to Earth, I'd weigh about, you know, 700 pounds. Wow. I couldn't get off the floor. All right. I understand about, you know, the, the moon you know, how it will affect Earth, what they're planning on doing on the moon. But how will what they're doing on Mars affect those still here on this planet? Well, of course, it just extends our knowledge base and our ability to do things uh, further out in space. It makes a lot of sense to develop Mars over the next century. We're going to be able to reach outside our solar system and maybe even go to the next star system. Ion drives, right now they're small, and the way, well, there are two ways that we do it. One is that we, we pack xenon gas uh, into space on the ship, and then we uh, electromagnetically accelerate the xenon gas, much like a rocket, but mm -hmm. much, much faster. It's very close to half the speed of light. And, you know, the math medical equation is force is equal to mass times acceleration. Now, it's not much mass, xenon gas, but it's a whole lot of acceleration. And we have succeeded in going all the way to the asteroid belt, 
grabbing a sample off series, and uh, that ship is on its way back, uh, Osiris Rex. It'll be here uh, 2023 or so. But it's small, and, and the technology is small, and if it runs out of uh, xenon gas, it's done. If we could refuel it in space, we could accelerate for weeks, months, and get close to half light speed, which means, you know, Proxima Centauri gets feasible for us to reach. How do we, excuse me, how do we know that by putting a, a colony on Mars, we're not going to be looking at the same situation as, as many explorers found themselves in when other countries from other parts of the world would invade and try to take over the colonies that, that had already been established, for example, like the, like the American and British. Well, and that's a very, very good example. Uh, the, the, you know, Atlantic Ocean was impassable. It was, right. it was a natural barrier that, that just made it almost impossible to control the colonists. So from, you know, 1680 or so till about 1775, that's a long time even in Earth's year, Earth years, uh, this colony was a, allowed to thrive on its own with very little, you know, military oversight. The frontier was just uh, immense. Mm -hmm. And, of course, what happened was that colony eventually established independence, which created a lot of strife and changed the course of humanity forever. The same thing is going to happen on Mars, except now we have an impassable expanse of space. And to take a military force from the Earth to Mars to enforce Earth law on Mars will be impossible. It just, uh, you, Mars would be able to defend itself. And that is another reason why the Space Force is so important, because we know militarily the high ground is the most important. The, the country that controls the moon will control Earth for a long time. So who do you see getting controlling the moon? Isn't the moon up for grabs? It is. And there are three countries right now that are vying for it. Uh, we have, of course, the European Space Agency. We have China and we have the U.S. And the U.S. has been working with the Russians. We've been working with the Indians. So it's, uh, you know, it's a multinational cooperative thing. But like I said, once you start putting these chips on the table, 10,000-year yeah. fuel supply of helium-3 sitting in one crater, uh, you know, in the Shackelford Crater in Schrodinger's Basin, which is a, the large, uh, uh, sort of like the, the, Ar the Antarctic circle of the moon, it... Um, its temperature is fairly stable at about zero degrees or 20 degrees Kelvin, uh, maybe 30 degrees Kelvin. But it's not subject to massive solar flares. It's more easily protected from that. It's, it's not so much the temperature of the moon. It's the temperature swings on the moon. And that's why the South Pole is going to be so critical because you get sunlight 24 hours a day. Uh, it never goes dark on the uh, mountains of the of the south pole so you have a source of electricity you have the fuel there on the moon and recently we have developed and mapped a lot of the lunar vents these the uh, lava vents that are on the moon and they're immense they're big enough to hold the city of philadelphia in them so you could actually build a colony on the moon under the surface of the moon about 15 kilometers and it would be totally safe. It would be pressurized. You wouldn't even have to have a spacesuit in them. You could 
run around on the inside and plant plants and run factories. And if you have a problem, mm-hmm. you're only two days away from Earth, so you can come right back. All right, I understand the, um, the significance of what we need to do on Mars, what we need to do on the moon, and what we need to do in order to sustain life, to secure our civilization, to make this a better world for everyone now and in our future. But that's what we want. What happens if we get to Mars and there are outside civilizations other than on the planet Earth who, are, who say, hey, wait a minute, uh-uh, this is our backyard. And they decide that they're not going to allow humanity on Mars. Their weaponry, what happens if it's more advanced than ours? What do we do then? Well, let, let me let me put this you know, parenthetically, here on Earth, we are all aware of UFOs. We see them, we film them, we've had, I don't know, countless eyewitnesses of them. But if you step back from it a little bit scientifically and look at it, um, we realize three things. A, they're there. B, they're about as present as they want to be. And if they wanted to be more present, There isn't a whole lot we could do about it. They could have taken over this planet back when we were riding horses, but they didn't. And the third is, and this is probably the most significant, they have not brandished their weapons. We've chased them, we've shot at them, but as far as I know, they've never shot back in a big way. And we don't really know if all those UFOs are from here and some ancient zenith of... of, 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 mankind, I'll put it, or life form here on this earth and their cities and countries and way of life has long since vanished or they live on the bottom of the ocean or even inside our planet. Um, But they have a different uh, biosphere than we do. Obviously, it, it seems they can't just come down on the surface and step out and watch a football game. We live in a sea of viruses and bacteria, but our DNA is a junkyard of, of um, experience with mm-hmm. those microbes. Another race might not have, or well, certainly wouldn't have the defenses against those kinds of things. Right. Um, okay, Brooke, on- I hate to do this, buddy, but we've got to take our final break. Exxon Nation, fascinating conversation with our guest, this our Brooks Agnew. And if you'd like to find out more about Brooks, listen to his uh, show, visit his website, brooksagnew.com. I'll be back on the other side of this break as we wrap up this hour here in the Exxon from our broadcast center and studios in Crystal Beach, Ontario, Canada. Exonation Brooks Agnew is our special guest this hour, www.brooksagnew.com. And if you'd like to uh, listen to Brooks's radio show, visit American Free, or is it America Free or American Free? America Free Radio.com. Uh, first of all, Brooks, thanks a million for joining us. Always a great pleasure talking to you. Um, we last kind of left off where 
the UFOs have now entered the scenario. Do you think that there is actually a conspiracy to suppress the truth about UFO existence? Well, I guess it would depend on who's holding on to that truth. If we believe that the UFOs are only communicating with the official officials with government and mm-hmm. diplomats with government, I think we're fooling ourselves. I don't really think there is any intelligent life in Washington, D.C. Uh <laughs> I, I think there yeah, are lots okay. of intelligent people, open-minded people that uh, could uh, interact with aliens, let's call them aliens, here sure. on this planet. But, uh, you know, we're tucked away on the outer rim of the Milky Way galaxy where we've looked 20,000 light years in every direction. There's no other planet like Earth. We're tucked away out here almost as though it was done on purpose. However, as we have developed space... We haven't done very well at it. We have about 21,000 pieces of junk floating around in our our own orbit. We have 500,000 objects traveling at about 18 to 25,000 miles an hour going around our planet. And I think we've made a lot of trial and error, and we haven't cleaned up our errors. So now it's a chance for us to go to the moon and do it right and put just what we need in orbit and uh, and do a much better job of it. Are we joining a, a galactic society? There are a lot of people that think so, that there's some federation of planets out there that we eventually will interact with. But I think we have to first venture out and make it possible to utilize the energy in our solar system before we even qualify to join such a federation. There are many people within the UFO community who actually believe that UFOs have been recovered, their propulsion system reverse-engineered, and I keep asking, well, if that is the case, why aren't these propulsion systems being used in spaceflight instead of warfare exactly exactly (laughs) i work with a lot of the uh, smaller companies let's put it that way you know if a good example is to look at the automotive industry in the early american uh, society to begin with we had about 75 automobile makers and then it, it condensed down to about 56 and then the consolidations and the mergers and the lawsuits and the you know different uh, methods of competition and free enterprise applied. And now we don't have so many car companies in the U.S., but we have a lot of cars. The same things going on in the space industry. You know, I consult with the Fortune 500. I try to more work with the Fortune 100 now later in my career. There are a lot of companies that make retro rockets and robotics and communication systems and mining systems, but they're small. They run out of capital. They get acquired by other companies. They get patents and gets sued and mm-hmm. uh, acquired and I'm working with a lot of these companies that are being gobbled up as almost as quickly as they form and it's great for the founders you know they come up with some kind of technology develop it to a certain point and then sell it off and that's what's going on in the space industry so you know it's changing it's ex- economics are changing the 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 method by which we govern that kind of commerce is changing it's not like anything we've ever seen before. And it's moving so quickly. The technology is growing by leaps and bounds. It hasn't always been that way. And I have to be honest, there were times 
in our technological development from the industrial age till now, where huge leaps in technology were made, like the transistor or uh, fission, different things like that, there was was no precursor for this. It just suddenly appeared, like 20 years of research was done in 20 days. So it, it does make sense that maybe some higher technology was recovered, and in as much as we could re reverse engineer, I'm, I guarantee we took the low-hanging fruit first. Sure. But humans typically, or at least governments, typically use that kind of technology in warfare, not in space exploration. What is your opinion on the recent uh, video footage released by the United States Navy uh, with the UFOs that they have nicknamed Tic Tacs? Yeah, well, it shows up as a Tic Tac in infrared film. Mm -hmm. All you really see is the hot spot. You don't, you don't see wings or right. anything like that. And although the Pentagon has come out and said the video is genuine, they have said nothing about the audio being genuine. And so I think that what people are thinking is the official cockpit, you know, banter that goes on as this thing was being chased. I don't think that's accurate. Uh, I think if you follow anything that's got a hot motor, it's going to look just like that Tic Tac. Right. So what do you think the next step is in the immediate future when it comes to spaceflight and moon missions? Well, the first thing we have to do, as I said, is develop that cislunar space. We've got to put way stations, uh, uh, geo uh, positioning, or geo lunar positioning satellites in place. Right now, we use the GPS system that's orbiting Earth to mm. navigate the moon. But it's, you know, 250,000 miles away. So it doesn't give us much resolution about 100 meters or so. We need to be able to navigate within half a meter or a quarter of a meter. To do that, we have to have satellites around the moon. And that technology is being built today, right now. What's your opinion on the space tourism industry that, um, that we're seeing in the news? Uh, what, what is it? William Shatner's going up with Jeff Bezos? I think it's inspirational. Yeah. Uh, there are other uh, platforms. There's one that's a, a massive helium uh, ship and it can go up to about a hundred thousand feet and then return to earth and that's That's a lot more feasible because you can stand up and walk around and you don't feel like you're gonna vomit all the time <laughs> You go weightless. Yeah. I'd say 95% of the people are gonna lose their lunch and they're not gonna be able to eat for days It takes a lot of training uh, in the Air Force. We have a, a ship we affectionately call the vomit comet and we take it up and put it into a low dive, which gives you a weightless feeling in, in the uh, cabin of the craft. But not many people come out of that uh, intact. Really? It's, it's not something that's uh, fun at all. Speaking about the Air Force, Area 51, what is your opinion of what Area 51 really is? Are there aliens there? Are there crashed UFOs there? Or is it just a top-secret military installation that is being used for the development of of spacecraft, aircraft, and other equipment being used by today's military to protect us all? Well, there are certainly popular figures that have, have made careers out of that speculation, but I tend to use Occam's razor. I'm a scientist, I'm an engineer, I deal in measurement systems, and if it can't be measured, it doesn't exist as far as I'm concerned. And I think it makes a lot more sense that America had Area 51 to develop 
the very best technology we could so that we would have a military superiority that would give us a year, maybe 10 years uh, advantage over what we perceive to be our enemies. But we've already seen what happens when that technology makes its way to Sandia Labs or Los Alamos Labs, then uh, China or Russia, they yeah. step in, they offer some money, people sell it, and you know, then everybody has it. You know, the Russians blew off a nuclear weapon, you know, less than a decade after we uh, uh, blew off Trinity because the technology was given to them through corrupt individuals inside our own government. So I think Area 51 had to be developed. It had to be sequestered. And that adds to its mystique. But I think the latter is probably more feasible that it were, they were developing aircraft, some of it possible some of it not possible i think test pilots died testing it yeah and they just didn't want anybody else to have that technology as to whether there are aliens there i mean it's the stuff of science fiction i'm not aware of any of it nor do i know anyone personally that's aware of it brooke the time is brooks the time has come for us to say so long for tonight what are your final thoughts for the exxon nation well, I, I love your radio program. I love the, the way that you handle it and the subjects that you cover. And Thank I you, think sir. this is the great uh, hope for humanity is that we are born explorers. So we're not really warriors. We're more explorers. And this mm -hmm. is along the things that makes humanity great. So I have great hope for the human race. First of all, Brooks, always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much for your kind words. And uh, your books are available on Amazon.com. They're also available at Barnes & Noble. I guess all reputable book-selling platforms on the Internet. Yes, so that, and one thing yeah, to yeah. your listeners, if they buy my books on Amazon, uh, let me know. There's an email address right inside the book. I will give you the audio version of the book for free. So if wow. you're not a good reader, don't worry about it. I read it for you. You're a great man, Brooks. Thank you so much for doing what you do. Continued success. And Exonation, if you'd like to find out more about Brooks, visit his website, www.brooksagnew.com. And for his radio show, americafreeradio.com. I'll be back on the other side of this commercial break with the news as we continue here in the Exxon from our broadcast center and studios in Crystal Beach, Ontario, Canada. I'm Rob McConnell. Whatever you do, don't go away because we'll be right back. <laughs> 